No, no, I just feel like watching um, Bonfire of the Days, we'll talk about this, just made me really realize how much I dislike topics. Because, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I, I, you know, in all honesty, uh, I haven't really seen that many movies that he's in. Not a big um, Hanks completist. So you're not a big fan, then? You want to do the intro now? Because I feel like I've been doing it a lot recently. Hey, welcome to Project A+. I'm your boy, Hugh. And with me is my boy. I don't like the implications of that. That seems, that seems a little weird. Hunter Fieri. Yeah, that's me, Hunter Fieri. <laughs> Son of acclaimed restauranter. Hunter Fieri. Get the pronunciation right. Lose yeah, the uh, ancillary sound effects. Okay, so... Um, Project Plus. Bah! What are we, what are we, what is this, what is this? This is a podcast? Yeah, it's a podcast. Uh, And uh, if if you're a new listener, you're like 65 episodes deep or whatever it is. I don't know what the number is, but it's in the 60s. 700, something like that. Seth MacFarlane released a new album last year. Another one? Another set of standards? Yeah, it seems like it. Wow. Irving Berlin, you know? Oh. Yeah. Some Irving Berlin. Blue sky. No, no. We're, we are going to sing a song later, just to be clear. Uh. <laughs> are you ready? To, are you practicing? Oh, are we supposed to sing something? Yeah, the Play Not Rio song. Which one? There's two prominent songs. <laughs> the one that opens the movie. The okay. one that's the duet. I'm actually more familiar with the other song because that plays like ten times in total throughout the movie. Uh, that, the other one I, did, I didn't even leave an impression on me, so. In its entirety. Um, the one that made the most impression on me was the summing up the, the, the summing up the film. What if we both went a little bit crazy? Blame it on Rio. Yeah, yeah that kind of bookends like the film. Yeah. But throughout the film... That's the most important parts, right? <laughs> I can't remember the song, actually, but I remembered it while I was watching it. <laughs> okay. By which, I mean, I experienced it. I didn't remember it. <laughs> so it sounds like you actually remember the song that bookends the film more than... I remember when I was watching it, the same second song being played like at least half a dozen times, I would say. So I remembered the hook of it while I was watching. I was like, here's that stupid hook again. We're going to do that, though, is what I'm saying. Yeah, we'll do the Blame It On Rio song. They're going to do all of it. All right, what what are we... This is a film podcast, yeah? Yes, this is a film podcast. So I'm just talking about other things like... Um... Films. No, we typically talk about films. Um, what else do we talk about? Homes. Your 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 life is a uh, your Dickensian life at the sandwich factory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and sometimes sometimes a juicy anecdote will sneak in there at the head of the show. I like the idea. <laughs> I like the idea that you're like, uh, in the uh, this is like your life is like the um, you know like white guy uh, redemption drama. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? You're like, you hit rock bottom. <laughs> you you learned how to become king of the sandwich factory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The sandwich factory, which is mostly non-white people, I assume. 
That's correct. <laughs> yeah. And also, if I if I move into this apartment that I looked at today, mm. it plays well with with my new uh, employment because it's in like an area that is quite historically working class, mm. like near major roads and like a freeway and some dilapidated factories and stuff. I mean, there's parts of this area that that are quite trendy and expensive now. Mm. But this, this, this particular section still looks quite desolate, just physically. So uh, I feel like that'll go well. All right. Anyway, let's let's get off the show. <laughs> yeah. Right. What are we doing this week? Uh, we're going to talk about three movies for the final time, perhaps at least for the next project. Thank God. Yeah, I think I think watching uh, two or three movies is a bit much. But also, if we do another big project like we did with their Radiant Cinema. I can't imagine how he would do it any other way, so... Just fuck big projects. <laughs> no, no. Gotta, gotta do we'll the see. biggest ones. We'll I just see. feel like, you know, at the moment it probably makes sense for both of us to do one or two movies a week. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, after after our lives become a little more stable, we'll see. But, anyway, um, so... We're gonna talk about a, a, a not a new release. <laughs> it's kind of new for you. A fairly new release. Um... A movie that I saw in December of last year, <laughs> and I was going to try to see it before we were going to record last week, but I ran out of time, and I've been really busy this last week. So, cool. Uh, but a little film called Uncut Gems, yes, which which Letterboxd tells me I saw uh, on the on the nineteenth of December. I think I watched it when it came to Netflix in Australia at the end of January. So, mm. about the. Let's see now. That probably, I'm sure it won't dip in our conversation. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it'll be amazing as always. Um, then we're gonna finally close out our uh, turkeys by eagles um, series mini with, project. Uh, yep, uh, with <laughs> which ironically I think is just in terms of time, uh, not in terms of episodes, but in terms of time we've devoted to it. <laughs> not devoted to it, but time it's encompassed might be our longest project. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, he started in what, like November? Yeah, it's the project that has taken the longest to complete, mm. even if it encompasses less episodes than the Iranian cinema project, I yeah. would assume. Yeah. Um, but we're going to talk about two great masterpieces this week. We're going to talk about uh, first. We're going to we're going to um, you know put some uh, grease on the fire. I'm I'm really tired. I, I had a long day of work today, so I bet we both did. I assume. No, that's yeah. a thing that people know. Putting grease on the fire. Yeah, but he, we're talking about bonfire of the vanities. Put some grease on the fire, and then we're gonna uh, sizzle that hamburger up. That hamburger being blame it on Rio. Stanley Donen film about. <laughs> <laughs> what is it about? <laughs> Well, well, we'll get into it. Yeah, if our listeners are not aware of it, it will now just exist as a tantalizing title. What? What are we blaming on Rio? <laughs> well, we'll find out. Um, but first, we gotta gotta talk about Uncut Gems. Do you reckon the Rio defense would hold up in court? Yeah, definitely. Is that, are you asking? <laughs> Your Honor, I was in Rio. <laughs> are you asking me because of a possible uh, conviction or something? Yeah, an upcoming court case. <laughs> um, anyway. So, let's start with the Uncut Gems, shall we? No. No, no, no. No, you're getting ahead of ourselves. Do you have a, do you have a shitty uh, anecdote you'd like to share with the, the listeners? Well, I do. Um, and I know normally there's, there's quite a sharp divide 
between the, you know, opening nonsense personal story mm. stuff and then the, you know, shitty undergraduate film analysis that we mm. engage in for the rest of the podcast, mm. right? No, no, I'm a, I'm a graduate student, so... Or actually, oh, I'm, an ex, I'm, a, I'm an ex-graduate student. Right, right. So. Um, yeah, so normally there's no great connection between between the two sections of the podcast. It's like, here's the personal stuff, okay, now let's talk about the films that we've watched this week or whatever. Mm. But this time, there is there is kind of a thematic connection oh, to... Shit. One of our films, maybe the main feature, in fact. So you're having sex with an underage girl of your best friends. <laughs> <laughs> I said maybe the main feature. Okay, so you're having sex with your mistress. No, no, no. So, so, uh, so I do have a story, right? It's quite a detailed story, and it will <laughs> derail the podcast for several minutes, but it is important. Okay, right, come on. Go ahead. Are <laughs> right, you ready? Yeah, I'm listening. <clears throat> My story. Thank you. <laughs> um... <laughs> So, so, so I had an engagement Webster's on... Webster's defined. <laughs> so I had an engagement on uh, Monday night, mm-hmm. which meant that I had to be in the city uh, a few hours before work, right? Mm. Now, I was, I was tempted to skip said engagement because it really disrupts my ability to sleep before work. Mm. So, you know, I decided to do the right thing and attend anyway, even though it's not really doing the right thing because I just go to the meeting and I sit there and I say nothing and contribute it in no meaningful way. So whatever. Anyway, Mm. so that was my first decision was like, should I go or should I not go? I decided to go, right? That's decision number one. I went. So you got to keep track of all the decisions that lead up to what happened. God damn. Okay. That's the first decision, right? So the engagement finishes. I then have to decide, should I travel home? only to leave again for work mm-hmm. or should I just hang around in the city and go to work from the city? Uh-huh. Right. A reason that if I bothered to travel home at that particular time, I would only have half an hour at home or something before I was leaving again. That seemed like silly. So I may as well just hang out in the city. And because I hadn't eaten all day, you know, grab some dinner. You know, that sounds reasonable, right? Yeah. So that's the second decision I made. Then I, then I had to find a place to, to have dinner. One of the places that I first tried uh, was a, a Chinese restaurant I had been before and uh, enjoyed my meal at previously. Mm. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I, I could go for that. I'm, I'm in the mood for that. Plus, in the age of uh, coronavirus, I want to show that I'm not a coronavirus racist. And that I'm more than happy to consume food from Chinese restaurants, unlike some Australians. Uh. So I was like, yeah, this is what I feel like. And also I'm doing something socially responsible. So I went in there, but it turned out that the one thing that I can eat on the menu, which is otherwise entirely meat-based, was unavailable. (laughs) So I had no choice but to leave the establishment. But I'm sure the staff would have seen my willingness to eat there. And it was just the unavailability of that particular item there. I got it. You're not a racist. Yeah, you're performative, performative non-racist. No, no, I'm not saying I'm not a racist. No, you are a racist. I don't want to seem like one. I I very much publicly don't want to seem like one. You virtue signaled. I got it. Yeah, exactly. You got it. You got me. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So then... 
I had to make another decision. Like, where do I eat now? Right. This is decision number three. Mm. I opted to go to a fast food restaurant mm. that was on the opposite corner. Uh-huh. The fast food restaurant was called Hungry Jack's. I think it's important to state that fact because this is the Australian version of Burger King. Okay. It is the same company. It's yeah. just called Hungry Jack's in Australia. And there was a time when Burger King tried to introduce stores called Burger King in Australia and it didn't work. So it's just remained as Hungry Jack's. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, now this particular fast food joint, the reason I decided to patronize it was because it was kind of decently decorated for a uh, fast food joint. Yeah. Normally when you go to one of these places, I don't know what it's like in America so much, but normally there's like a sort of air of desperation that pervades the establishment and you kind of want to flee the the restaurant as if it were a crime scene once you've consumed your garbage, right? Can, can I tell you a quick... Uh thing about McDonald's in my hometown. You may. Which is, all the McDonald's in my hometowns are pretty, you know, McDonald's-y, right? Yeah. There's one that, for whatever reason, and I'm, like, haunted by this image, had this bizarre player piano, okay? <laughs> really? Yeah. That is bizarre. At, at, which, at which stood was seated a, a human being that had a moon for a head. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea why this, why this was. I think it existed, but it, it was, so. <laughs> That's good. Anyway, yeah. So you, you picture me. I'm in this Hungry Jack's, right? Going to get my dinner. And uh, I eye off the exact seat that I want to sit at. It's a nice, quiet table, separated from the other table, sort of in a corner, so I could be at peace with my shitty food. So I I make my order. I decided to order loaded fries, which is a a small box of fries covered in some shitty cheese sauce Mm. and a flat white because uh, I had not slept very much and I needed coffee. So that was my gourmet dinner. Once my order arrived, I turned around and with horror, I realized that my seat had been taken. So I reluctantly had to sit at the bench that overlooked the street by the window. Uh-huh. So you're picturing that. You've got all this down, right? Yeah, you're yeah, the bench, down. Hungry Jacks. Yep. Hungry Jacks. I'm eating these terrible cheese Blood fries. fries. yeah. Blah, 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 blah. So I sit down and I start tucking into my terrible cheese fries and my not that bad actually flat white when a shady character sits a few seats down and says something to the effect of, fuck the world, I'm going to leave it, and I can't wait. Okay. And I say something to the effect of, because I didn't, I didn't quite hear him. So I, I could hear it was like a weirdo saying something weird. So I was like, yeah, okay, yeah. sure. Like I did some yeah, sort of yeah. acknowledgement sound, because he was kind of partly addressing me. <laughs> and it actually took me like a few moments to realize, wait, did he, was he intimating suicide or something? Right. Uh-huh. And then I was like, well, what, what's the right thing to do here? Do I, like, try and give him the lifeline number? And I was just, like, really annoyed that, you know, I'd missed my nice quiet table. Now I was sitting at this communal table. I had to put up with this, this nutcase, mm-hmm. right? 
not that being suicidal makes you a nutcase, but he genuinely had that nutcase vibe where you just want to interact <laughs> with random people, right? God, you're, you're doing so many, uh... <laughs> I'm not a racist. I'm not calling you for suicidal nutcase. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, a, I'm a nice guy. I, I respect... <laughs> I respect weirdos. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> anyway, anyway, you know, so these thoughts are running through my head. Then he starts talking some more, right? He says something like, I've written down, like, what I remembered on my phone at the time. So I'm going by that. And this is this okay. is pretty close. But it's something like, the world is a cesspool of corruption and lies and murder. Uh, I won't miss it, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Then he turns to me yeah. and he says, have you had a good life? <laughs> hey, what did you say? Well, look, look, I was smart about this. I knew that if I said, yeah, you bet, or something... Uh-huh. That, you know, that will be playing into his hands and, and you know, I, I have some awful exchange with him from then on. Like, well, I haven't, you know. Like, nah, I work at a sandwich factory. I have a podcast that no one wants to see. <laughs> um, so all, all I just said is not really. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and that was the right answer, right? Because all he could really say from there was like, yeah, life's pretty bad, isn't it? I was like, yeah. Yeah, yes, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. Is this like a uh, weed on to you say that he's in the studio right now? <laughs> anyway, anyway, so he, he, he expounds about his plans, right? Mm. And he says that he's going to get euthanized. Yeah. And in fact, he's going to euthanize himself. And then he explains why. He says, not, not only does he think the world is accessible of corruption and murder and whatever, mm. but he's also got thyroid cancer. Mm. And his diagnosis is like three months. So he wants to go out on his own terms, as it were. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, end it this Sunday, this upcoming Sunday. So it's Wednesday here now, so a few days away. And uh, he wasn't going to adopt the normal euthanasia methods. He was going to take a shit ton of heroin until his heart stopped, right? That was his plan. And uh, he was going to return to nature, he said. Now, bear in mind, this is the second time a stranger has told me something, like, almost exactly like this. Because um, there was a guy in Japan who, who said that, but the, his method was to jump into a volcano. There's something anyway. about your demeanor yeah. that people, yeah. that suicide people are I bring that to. out in people. <laughs> hey, why do you think we started talking? <laughs> um, anyway, he said he didn't want to be reincarnated because there's no way he's coming back to this hellhole. Um, and then he went on to tell me some quite fanciful things i'm not sure were accurate but anyway (laughs) like like what he told me he was the former leader of a certain prominent biker gang Mm. a very famous one i'm not sure if i wanted to disclose all the details of this podcast (laughs) to be honest but anyway it's the one you're thinking of it's the one you're thinking of and uh he (laughs) stepped down and renounced his membership after his diagnosis was he was he australian yeah, he's Australian. So it would have been the Australian <laughs> chapter, right? Okay, okay, sure, sure, sure. And uh, so normally you can step down, you know, if something happens, mm. but you wouldn't necessarily renounce your membership. But he's he's gone out of his way to renounce his membership. He doesn't want those bad vibes associated with him anymore or whatever. You know, whatever. Yeah, step yeah. down. He also said he was the former lead singer for a, you know, relatively well-known uh, 80s metal group, American 80s metal group to boot. I looked it up, and they actually they actually were quite a famous band. <laughs> Do they have Australian like. singer? No, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> so he said he was the first lead singer, mm. and then he, he, he through some convoluted uh, 
occurrence where he lied about his age or he was underage and he couldn't play, you know, over 21 clubs or whatever in America. Seriously. That caused an issue with the management at the time. So somehow they decided to replace him with his cousin who looked very similar to him. And then his cousin's been reaping the, reward, the rewards ever since. Um, he also told me he was albino, but he, he dyes his hair. But when he's just in his natural albino look, people come up and think he's a messiah of some sort. Or one of, you know, one of the chosen people. Then he said to me, you look like a nice person. You look like you don't associate with... Yeah, yeah, how wrong he was, yeah. You look like you don't associate with bullshit, like violence and Muslim terrorists and that sort of thing. I I kind of thought there was going to be some racism coming up. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) You just do your own thing, right? Again, I couldn't quite make out exactly what he he said. I just heard, like, Muslim terrorists embedded somewhere in there, and I was like, that sounds kind of racist. So, anyway, his question was, "You, you just do your own thing. I was like, yeah, I guess I do. Um... I'm not affiliated with anything. <laughs> and then he talked about the podcast. Uh, yeah. He's a solicitor. <laughs> and then he was talking about the fact that his kids will be fine because uh, he has a lot of money. He has millions, apparently. When he got his diagnosis, he left his family, right? He didn't want them... I'm, I'm assume, reading between the lines, I'm assuming he didn't want them to go through the experience of watching him suffer and die. So he decided instead to make them hate him so much that they don't care that he's left. <laughs> yeah, which, which is yeah. a choice. Yeah, yeah. I don't see how that's better than, you know, watching someone you love just pass away. Well, yeah, anyway. And while, while this is all happening, I'm trying to enjoy my, my terrible fries without looking insensitive, just scooping these little cheese-soaked chips into my mouth and just, just really want to be left alone. And, uh, and, then, and then he said... Can I leave you something? And uh, I was like, no, no, that's, that's not necessary. He's like, no, 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 um, please let me give you something. I was like, no, 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 really, you shouldn't do that. Mm. He's like, I'll give you a diamond. <laughs> <laughs> and this is why you quit the, your job. <laughs> I was like, no, no, I don't, I don't, I don't want a diamond. Uh, please, like, this is not, like, this doesn't seem right. And he's like, what, are you going to deny a dying man's wish? You know, I'm going to die on Sunday. This is what I want to do with my final days. You're going to deny that? I'm like, I, I, I don't deserve it. And he's like, well, it doesn't matter. Like, I want to give this to you. You can throw it away. You can do whatever you want with it. That's not what it's about. It's just about I want to give this to you. Are you really going to deny me that? Yeah. I was like, well, I, I guess not. <laughs> Give me diamond. <laughs> and he was like, you know, it doesn't have, to, doesn't have to be for you. You can put it on a ring for your girlfriend or something, right? <laughs> and he pulls out this tiny little plastic baggie. Uh-huh. And, and produces a tiny, tiny diamond. And places it on the Hungry Jack's counter before my cheesy box of fries. Uh-huh. And I'm just staring at this little diamond. Uh-huh. And he's like, take it to the jewelers on Collins Street uh-huh. to get it appraised, but don't let them take it away, right? Because what these sneaky jewelers do 
is they will turn turn their back on you and swap it with a, a cheap imitation of the same cut of diamond and then mm. say it's worthless and then keep the expensive one. Okay. So you've got to get them to appraise it while you're holding it. Okay. <laughs> while it's in front of you. And then you take it to this diamond auction in Turak or something. I can't remember if he named specific places or he just said a diamond auction in Turak. And I'll get, apparently, between twenty and $30,000 for it. Wow. Damn. And, uh, I was like, I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> Look at this, this tiny little diamond. And he says it's got some weird enamel coating on it, and it was like scratching it away, like as if that bit didn't matter. I was, I was confused. I didn't understand. I don't understand diamonds. <laughs> sure, sure. You know, in my head, I was thinking, assuming this is legit, and that's that's a huge assumption. Yeah. I was like, it sounds like a lot of work. I hate errands. I don't want to. <laughs> I don't know if that's worth it, even for like thirty thousand dollars. <laughs> you can quit your job that much money. I know. Um, <laughs> And then, and then the other thing I was thinking is like, where am I going to put this thing? Like, this is this was a tiny diamond, sure. and he he took the little baggie away, and I wanted to go. Can I have the little baggie? <laughs> where am I going to put this tiny diamond? It's going to get lost in my bag. Would that oh. would it be gauche to ask him for the little baggie? <laughs> so I end up wrapping it in a hungry Jack's napkin sure. and putting it in my bag. Uh-huh. And then he takes a phone call, right? And he's talking to someone who I presume is a friend of his. And he tells his friend, don't tell anyone, but he's, in, he's come into a bunch of money. Mm. And he's going to go on a world trip on Sunday. He's going to tell no one, he's just going to take off. And he tells his friend, don't tell anyone about this, I'm just going to take off. Obviously, he's covering for the fact that that's the day that he plans to kill himself with heroin, right? That kind of substantiates the story to some degree. At least his desire to... Do something on Sunday. So he's probably dead at this point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, so I so I wait. I sort of stand up. I was like, should I wait till he finishes his conversation? Would it be rude just to walk off now? Um, but he finishes, and I like shake his hand, and he says like, you know, peace be with you, brother, as you do. And uh, <laughs> I walk off, <laughs> and now I've got this uh, ill-gotten diamond wrapped in a hungry jack's napkin that may or may not be worth thirty thousand dollars. <laughs> From a probably racist ex-biker nut. Oh, probably fake. And I'm wondering, what, what do I do with this diamond? I don't, want to, I don't know. I've, just, I've still got, I've got it in my drawer next to me. Still wrapped in a napkin. Um, but I put a rubber band around it you so should, it wouldn't fall out. You should try to, I don't know, like, test it to see if it's fake or not. So, on, on the one hand, like, like, all the stuff he was saying sounded like bullshit. Yeah. But on the other hand... Why would you carry around like tiny fake diamonds? <laughs> like, because uh, you're I don't know. Like, I guess so. Maybe he does it <laughs> to like everyone he meets. He's like, here's my little diamond, <laughs> so he can feel good for a little bit before they actually get it appraised. Yeah. Anyway, so that's my story about cut gems. <laughs> that's that's the craziest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> wow, that's so much better than your normal stories. I know. Isn't it good? I was so happy when <laughs> that's it happened. Crazy. <laughs> I was more happy like it wasn't so much the financial like the potential financial gain as the th- the anecdote man <laughs> yeah that's insane <laughs> well, what was the engagement uh, uh, that was the refugee meeting yeah oh, gotcha okay. maybe that was that was my reward 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, for doing nothing. <laughs> for doing the bare minimum. <laughs> Sorry, I don't even know what to say anymore. That was like the most insane thing that anyone's ever told me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, um, should we kind of talk about some uncut gems? Let's do it. Placing my bets Not to win But to live in the cracks Between riches and deaths Between fantasy and Alright, so tell me about Uncut Gems. Okay. Uncut Gems follows the story of Howard Radner a small-time uh, diamond district jewelry sailor guy. A sailor? <laughs> Sa- seller guy. Okay. Howard has just exploited the labor of some Ethiopian uh, Jewish people in order to get a black opal, which is this shiny gem thing that he wants to leverage and sell for a million dollars like that. Um... Um, before he can do that, though, a famous basketball player by the name of Kevin uh, Gardet, is that his name? Yeah. Uh, comes into his store, uh, is entranced by the Opal, and uh, wants Howard to um, let him borrow it so he can give him mystical powers so he can defeat his rivals on the basketball court. As collateral for this, Howard he gives Howard a uh is like championship ring i don't i don't know i don't know what it yeah is. that's right yeah then howard being a gambling addict decides to uh get like a down payment on this ring and then he uses that to make a bet on a basketball game and then things start to spiral um some other characters get involved including uh howard's wife He's played by Dina Menzel. And also his uh, mistress, played by Julia Fox, whose name I've totally forgotten. Julia. Uh, sure. Um, he is being hounded by his brother-in-law, um, whose name I've also forgotten. He's played by Eric uh, Bogosian. Amo. Uh, or Amos. Arno. A- Arno. 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 Yes. Yeah. And his thugs, because uh, he owes them a lot of money. Yeah, and um, some stuff happens. Uh, does Howard get over his head and uh, continue to make terrible seeming life decisions? Because uh, this is a film directed by the Safdie brothers. You best believe it. Um, but you, that's not the question. The question it's is, not. what did, what did you think of the gems that are uncut? Did you, have you become entranced by its magical power like so much of film Twitter has? Or were you resisted to the allure of the Black Opal? I was a little bit frustrated with this film by the end. Mm. Even though I'll acknowledge the fact that for most of its running time, it's a pretty solid, entertaining story, I think. Mm. Uh, a lot of people f- have said that it's very stressful and it's like having a panic attack for, for two hours or whatever. I didn't get that stressed out by it. I found the, the situation quite entertaining to watch, to be mm. honest. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to agree with you. I think, I think the last moments I found stressful, but in a way that was entertaining. So 
It's ple- it's a pleasurable stress. Yeah, it's not that this, it's not that it didn't induce some form of tension or stress in me, and there are certainly scenes mm-hmm. that do that quite expertly. I think. Um, but it is, yeah, it's like, it's, it's a pleasurable form of stress. Yeah. Cause I think what they're going for, not to, you know, get out to, to, to sound so, too much like a, a, a dumbass, Um, but it feels like they're trying to, trying to induce a gambler's high by mm. like a descriptive remark. Yeah, indeed. But, but I've heard some critics say things like, you know, I really like this film, but I never want to see it again. Right. It's such an intense experience. I can't imagine that. Like yeah. I, even though I have reservations about this, which I'll get to. I could watch this again and quite enjoy it. So, me too. <laughs> so there you go. Um, it feels to me, honestly, like the Safdie brothers are still in something of an immature phase. Mm. And and this 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 film kind of operates at an uncomfortable nexus between sort of an art movie and a genre movie. Mm. And it doesn't quite satisfy in the way that I hoped on either level. Mm. So I thought it was a bit too shallow to sort of function as a more character-based art house kind of story, right? Mm. But because it has that artifice of being more like an art house film than a straight genre film, for example, mm. then it, there was, it, it, it kind of impacted the way I could enjoy this as just a entertaining story about this, you know. Yeah, that makes sense this gambling high wire act of this guy's life. Mm. And it kind of felt to me at a certain point, and I guess we can spoil what happens with the plot. So if, if you're yeah. not interested in that, you can skip this entire episode and the rest of the episodes of our podcast. <laughs> sure. Cause we're going to dedicate every episode from now on to the end Spoilers. of Uncut Gems. Yeah. yeah. Just of Uncut Gems, no matter oh, what yeah. film we're talking about. That's where um, we're going to open every episode the sort of culmination of all these things, all those balls in the air that uh, Sandler's character is juggling is is him getting shot in the head, right? Yeah. And to me, that felt like a cop-out. That mm. felt like, how do we end this story in a satisfying way? We've set all this stuff up. It's an impossible situation that he's got himself into. We know that he probably, it can't be a happy ending, right? It has to mm. have some sort of ironic counterpoint. You know, it, there has to be some sort of, Thing that undoes him because that's kind of inevitable mm. um and i was i was just hoping it would be financial in nature and that the hell of his existence like the ultimate retribution for his lifestyle is that it actually continues mm. and that he's in this kind of perpetual situation where he, he never actually gets his head above water mm. right i thought that would be not that i'm saying like this if i was making the film this is how it should have ended but Something like that was would have tied the themes together better than just the oh no sh- randomly shot in the head. Mm. I, f- I thought that was a cop out. I've seen that too many times in movies where someone unexpectedly gets shot in the head as and it's played for like that ultimate unexpected shock of violence. Mm. That's interesting. That's interesting. Mm. Was that? Do you have any other um, remarks? I have other remarks, but first, let's hear what you think about it. Well, uh, I actually thought the ending to this film felt very uh, appropriate. Um, mm. So it seemed like I, you know, I could, I could, I, I understand. I, I'm not saying that your reaction is ungenuine, but it definitely felt within the logic of the narrative they were making, you know. And um, I don't know, like I felt like even if he wasn't going to get shot in the head at this particular moment, 
that at some point in his life, you know, there's just, he's just courting that sort of, he just like likes this risk too much to have it end any other way, you know? Um, Certainly. So that's how I felt kind of, I felt it was like uh, appropriate in that, in that way. Uh, Maybe if I watched the film again, I would feel different. I don't know. But um, it didn't feel, it didn't feel unexpected to me. It felt like a culmination. So Mm. uh, I was, I was into it. Uh, I wouldn't, I I just want to qualify what I said. I wouldn't necessarily say it was unexpected in terms of like. Oh, you thought, you thought. His life might have a violent end because he's associating with these type of people. But the unex the the in the in the within the context of the scene the sure. unexpected reveal of a gun coming out and shooting him in the head suddenly right that was the way it was executed so to speak mm. I guess it just didn't feel that unexpected to me mm. so I don't know what to say uh, maybe because it is kind of like a, a cliche way to end movies like this but I think it was a designed to elicit some shock right yeah I guess I just didn't I just didn't feel that. So, I don't mm. know. And I think that it worked for me in not feeling that, you know? Mm. It's like, I feel like, yeah, this is, the, this is the ultimate high for him. Like, there's nowhere for him to go except for to be dead. So, right. I was like, okay, yeah, this is fitting. Um, I, I guess I kind of had a, a opposite response to you. Not in terms of, like, I really enjoyed this a lot. I really thought it was uh, excellently done. But and maybe it's just because I was pretty sick the day I saw it. But um, for the first, like... 10 minutes or so I just found it hard to get into the rhythm right mm. um, but after I sort of uh, acclimated myself to this movie I thought it was really enjoyable um, and I don't know if like I have to you know come up with some uh, bullshit like film twitter reason why I just thought it was really expertly um, I mean beyond any sort of like thematic thrust which I don't know I thought that sort of attempt to tie it to world politics probably like the I mean, I, I kind of, like, appreciate it on one hand, but, and I'm, like, I'm not sure how I would, you know, I don't, I'm not trying to play back, backseat filmmaker and be like, oh, I would, you know, I would make it so much more well integrated, but the specific way they sort of do it at the beginning just felt a little, um, perfunctory in a way, I guess, mm. is how I'd put it. It just yeah, felt I like, with that. uh, okay, so, um, but, um, I understand why they did it too, because, you know, you're kind of, uh, erasing that element of, you know, this business by not having, by not portraying like the exploitation involved in, in mining. Yeah. But I just felt like it felt a little clunky and ill integrated, I guess. Hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, I feel like as, as soon as Sandler came on screen, I thought he just, I just thought he gave such a magnetic performance that, uh, I don't know, like everything else is almost like secondary in a way. Hmm. Like, and I felt that he was just so commanding, uh, and so, and just felt so like lived in. And I thought a lot that about a lot of the, you know, a- actors of this as well, that they just felt so, um, I don't know, just, it just fit for me. Uh, yeah. He's and, very good. I think that's yeah. undeniable. Uh, and I did, I guess like the shallowness for me is sort of like, I don't, I just don't care. So <laughs> I think, I think you're right though about the first like 10 minutes or so of the film, it does start in a way where you're just trying to keep up exactly with what's happening and sort of getting into, as you said, the rhythm of it. Yeah. Because you've just got all these people, like, talking and you're trying to gauge exactly what's happening in the situation and what's the setup and who's reporting to who and what's he trying to do. And it sort of just keeps going. It doesn't really change. It's just that you no, just get just, you just used, become to used to it. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I actually kind of like, in retrospect, that, you know, method of, of making a film. Yeah. 
Because, um, you know, it is really putting a lot of trust in the audience to, you know, keep up with it. It kind of like it, it, I mean, I can't exactly remember like the specific thing that happens at the start of the film, but it didn't feel like they designed a simpler, straightforward introductory scene no. for him. And then it would get into a more substantial story. It was more just yeah. like following him from a certain point of his life to yeah. obviously the end of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just, I just really like the, the, the score and everything just felt very, um, precisely done. And I really enjoy this sort of like character study. I feel like this sort of film is not something that gets made that often, mm. but because like, um, I don't know, just like it, it's specifically in his budget range. I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not like one of those people who's like, oh, you know, the mid budget, um, <laughs> you know, movies have just, because a lot of those are fucking cr- trash. Um, <laughs> but I think that. This, I think I think there is an unlikability to him uh, that I find really appealing. <laughs> just mm. because I feel like so many movies these days are predicated on you, um, you know, liking the protagonist. Mm. And I feel like there's something so, like, ugly and repulsive about him that is also sort of magnetic that I find I like it as a filmmaking decision. Because so many... Uh, it's the same reason I really appreciate something like The Wolf of Wall Street, too. Just because I feel like this specific character type is is something that a lot of filmmakers are afraid to put in their movies now, mm. <laughs> you know, by risk for risk of um, seeming un PC. I think, um, but you know. Now, if I could be facile for a moment, mm. or an entire podcast, um, I, I or an I entire kind of... sixty episodes of a podcast, <laughs> I kind of feel like, to some degree. And, and again, this is pretty superficial, but the Safdie brothers kind of like stylistically indie J.J. Abrams. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I don't, I don't really get that, but um, yeah, okay. This is pretty superficial, but, they're, they're but there, really is, there is... Intensity. There, yeah, there is the panicky camera and editing, which generates a certain yeah. intensity. There's the propensity to use lens flares. Mm. There's that talent for casting. Mm. And also, I think something hollow at the center of the film. So. I, I, I didn't I didn't get anything hollow at the center of myself. So. So, Sorry, bro. Hindi JJ. It's my. I guess, I guess my... we're gonna have to. I guess we're gonna have to disagree on on that particular. Uh, um. But yeah, I. You know. I I actually like the Safdie brothers more as people than I do as mm. filmmakers in a way. That's funny. And I mean, just based on their visit to the Criterion Closet. I didn't watch that. Which I think is one of the best of all of them, just because they aren't shy about the fact that they grab a shitload of stuff from the closet in these two huge bags. And it's just them sort of enthusing and bouncing off each other as brothers, and it's uh, it's very enjoyable. It's only like five minutes long. I do think their anointment is like, you know, great filmmakers in like the fact that this that uncut gems is so like has been so appropriated by like film twitter and like you know people who make like gift sets and shit like that makes you like it less <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> which is such a it's such a superficial way to approach movies and like you know i should have you know some confidence in my own opinions but yeah yeah i just find that if that specific thing to be so annoying <laughs> and it makes you be like what, do I really? Because like, I feel like <laughs> I don't know. I, I just like, do I really like this film that much? If, if these these 
these fucking vultures can, can <laughs> turn it into this garbage. Real movies like Bonfire of the Vanities can resist <laughs> this giveability. But um, uh, like like to follow on what I said about the fact that I think they're in kind of an immature phase. Mm. Like if you do watch that Criterion Closet visit or even some of their interviews, you kind of like yeah, it makes sense that these these two kind of film nerds would make films like this, you know, there's not like a huge leap between film geeks and, and this type of thing, I think. They don't necessarily completely transcend. No, I mean, it that, does feel very that. sort of like, you know, I don't know, there's like a Scorsese-ish thing yeah. them for sure. Definitely mired in the 70s, or rooted in the 70s. Yeah, which makes you kind of like um, resistant to them in a way too. Mm. And they do kind of make the same film over and over again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like it's, it's people making a bad, bad, bad person making bad decisions over. Yeah, over. and it's it's always like a nocturnal odyssey through a city at night, right? Yeah, maybe maybe I just like this one so much because I hadn't seen Good Time or any of the I, mm. or any of the other films. I mean, I guess Daddy Long Legs isn't, isn't isn't like that actually. So okay, maybe it's just Good Time and Uncut. Maybe it's the last two. But, I, but Daddy Long Legs does have similar sort of narrative trajectory, and the characters a little similar, just in terms of you know, yeah, someone yeah, is. Not a moral character making bad decisions, but definitely not like a doctrinal odyssey type. Okay, thing. right. So this, I mean, this feels like I think I prefer Uncut Gems to Good Time, but it only feels like a slight step up. I would say I think Good Time has a similar problem. Right. I need to see Good Time because it's one of my one of my friends is like one of his favorite films. He's always mm. bugging me to watch it. But um, do you know what's crazy is that they're making a pilot with Nathan Fielder. Are they really? For Showtime, yeah. That's great. I'm very happy about that. <laughs> yeah. Mostly because I love Nathan Fielder so much. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, I I really liked Uncut Gems. Um, I don't know if I have anything else to add. It wasn't a film that I, you know, it's not like one of those films that I, you know, will ruminate deeply about. You know what I mean? But it's, I definitely felt it a lot <laughs> when I was watching it. And that counts for a lot in my book, so. I, I actually kind of hope that uh, they will do some more purely genre-based stuff. Mm. And I don't necessarily mean specifically coded to uh, a particular genre, but it's something a, that... That seems a little less arty. Yeah, less has that veneer of art house character study and is more, you know, just about the pleasures of the mechanics. All right. Uh, let's move on. <laughs> let's move on. Project time. It's project time. Project time, it's project time. Project time, it's project time. Project time, it's project time. Turkey, tomato, ba 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 da ba. So our final uh, turkeys from eagles. Yep, we're uh, down we gotta, to we gotta the do it. We gotta turkey burkeys. The, the drags, yep. So I gotta, we're gonna start with the bonfire of the vanities, right? Bonfire is like 16%. Oh, yeah, 16 But Rio is 9%, so, okay, great. Way right, less. So bon- <laughs> wow. Bonfire of the Vanities. All the media is fucked. All the newspapers are up with scandal. And everyone's corrupt. They're Hey, did you know that the author of the book that this movie was based on was born in Richmond, Virginia? I did know that. I was going to bring that up if you didn't. Not too late. My mom's a really big fan of his for some reason. I was going to say your hometown boy. 
Yeah. He's dead now, so. We're yeah. speaking, of course, about Tom Wolfe. Have you read any Tom Wolfe books? I have not. I think I, I have, like, a, I had a second-hand copy of one of his books, but I never read it. It seems like one of those, just like, you know, people who are really big, that you're like, what? You know, it's like, why do people read Yeah, why books? do people like this guy? <laughs> yeah. You know what? You know what? I read that he he ushered into being, and for this mm. he should be condemned to hell forever. Mm-hmm. Five out of eight, it is. The no, the journalistic trope of writing profiles in mm. present tense. Mm. Yeah, which I hate so much. I mean, I can I can actually like appreciate that as a technique when it first started by say Tom Wolfe. <laughs> but it's so annoying. It's now. something that yeah, when you imitate it poorly, it's pretty annoying. Or it's like it's I so was annoying. Everything begins with like that. he turns up and he's wearing a you know thing yeah. of collar and ugh. I hate yeah, like the first two paragraphs of any profile written today. Any of them. Pretty okay. wrong. No. Um, let's um, get on with it. So what's a, what's what's a bonfire of the vanities? I'm not talking about Savin or Ravella, whatever the fuck that guy's name was. The Italian guy. <laughs> the Italian guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Alright, so what is what is Bonfire of the Vanities? Well, uh, The Bonfire of the Vanities is a film directed by one of your favorite directors, Brian De Palma. Yeah, I'm inter- Okay, my, my, my penis is in my hand. Based on the bonfire of the vanities by your hometown boy Tom Wolfe, so you should love oh, yeah. this film. Yeah. There's no reason why you wouldn't love this film. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Plus, it has all your favorite actors in it, like yeah. Tom Hanks, yeah. Bruce Willis, yeah. Melanie Griffiths, yeah. Morgan Freeman. Oh yeah. Kim Cattrall. Mm, very young Kirsten Dunst. Did you recognize her? No, what, who I had no idea who she was. Which she played the child. Uh, so okay, so it's about uh, this uh, stockbroker dude, bonds bell, bonds seller, not bonds bellsman, <laughs> bond a white man. trader, a bond trader called Tom Hanks, no, played by Sherman. the actor Sherman McCoy, or oh, vice versa, boy. whichever you prefer. And uh, he's he's this rich guy, right? Mm, a self-described yeah. master of the universe. No, not self-described. Yeah, he self-described. No, no, that's not true. Like the it's described by the narrator of the film. <laughs> yeah, who's who is Bruce Peter Willis. Fallow, <laughs> yeah, the writer. So it's not but he says that <laughs> yeah, he he's, calls he's... he considers himself a master of the universe, which makes yeah, that's, it that's, that's, self-described. That's, uh, that's that's what you call a narrative license, my friend. No, but no, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Anyway, whatever. You, all right, you continue. As soon as I make no, a mistake, it. it's your turn. Then when you make a mistake, I no, jump. No, no, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. <sighs> but it wasn't a mistake. Um, yeah, yeah, so self-described master of the universe. Uh, what's his name? Sherman McCoy. Sherman McCoy. He's this guy, right? And he's, uh, he's having he's an affair. He's fucking Melanie Griffith. He's having an affair with Melanie Griffiths. Even though he's married to Kim Cattrall, putting on an absurd and posh accent of some ironically, description. Ironically, ironically, she's a southerner, which you think she would have paused dating a man named Sherman. Mm. 
given Sherman's barge. They uh, they meet up. They drive around. Um, then they take a wrong turn. They end up in the Bronx when they they need to go to Manhattan. Yep, the South the, Bronx. The Bronx, South Bronx, South South Bronx. The Bronx is portrayed as a sort this of war like zone. Every, every, every 80s, every eighties movie. Yeah, with uh, cars on fire and uh, street thugs everywhere. The recent, the movie I recently watched, Jackie Chan's The Protector. Exactly. And uh, they get into a confrontation with a couple of maybe thugs. We don't know. Mm. But that's the suggestion. Uh. And uh, it seems like they're about to be mugged or something. But then uh, Tom Hanks fights back with a tire. Melanie Griffiths steps on the pedal. Uh, oh, no, they've run over one of them. Or did they? And then they drive off. Right. That's the question. And then, uh, you know, they meet back at the apartment, canoodle a bit. But like Sherman, the Tom Hanks dude, he's like, he's like, oh no, did we hit someone? Melanie Griffiths is like, yeah, maybe not, but doesn't matter. I was driving, not your fault. We shouldn't go to the police. And he's like, maybe we should go to the police. I'm like, no, no, don't go to the police. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, anyway, meanwhile, the, uh, the mayor. Yeah, nope. The district attorney. There you go. The district attorney is looking for a high-profile case a in high profile which white man in which they can uh, prosecute a prominent white person mm. in a case in which they inflicted damages upon a person of color. Right. And the reason why they're looking for a case of this nature is because they, I mean, the district attorney and I guess his affiliates. Uh, is uh, they are looking to win the votes of um, the African-American and Latino yes. community. Yes. And that a case of this nature would endear them to that important demographic and ensure that they yeah, are so they re-elected. Them. Yeah, that's what they're that's looking the for, right? So they, they get wind of this case where this, it turns out someone was hit by a car and it was by someone in a... In a you know, some wealthy white people in a Mercedes. So they, they set some people off to investigate and find out who was responsible. And meanwhile, you know, Sherman's panicking. It's like, what's, what's going to, what, what, what? I don't know, I don't want to be caught because I'm a rich guy, you know. I'm Tom Hanks. Anyway, they find out it is Tom Hanks. Um, there's a... My bachelor party. And then, uh... No, that's what he says. Know. My bachelor party. <laughs> Meanwhile, there's this drunken journalist called Peter Fallow. Yep. Who gets wind of the case. He gets a tip-off. Mm. And he starts writing about the case. Mm. And, uh, there's also a reverend who wants to exploit it for his personal gain. Yeah, there's and, a web uh, of characters. Yeah. Satire. Mm-hmm. Satire, the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Is that are you, are you all done? <laughs> Is that it? That's enough, right? Yeah, yeah. And it follows the court case and whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, uh, Peter Fowler is trying to uncover the truth, mm. but he's hampered by the fact that he's played by Bruce Willis. 
<laughs> and a performance that can only be described as him not be there at all. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right. Uh, do you tell you what I thought? I thought. Yeah. Did your favorite <laughs> filmmaker let you down? Um. <laughs> this is gonna sound. Uh, I, I I assume that uh, you're gonna have a contrary opinion to this you. Oh no. <laughs> but to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> the first like 50 finishes I was like this is terrible <laughs> and then I was like wow everyone in this movie is terrible <laughs> and then I kind of enjoyed it there was one scene I laughed so hard that I started crying <laughs> which we'll talk about uh, I I I like that this is the only movie that I can think of that Tom Hanks plays a scumbag I think it is close to how he is in real life. And I like that. Mm. Um, I don't think this movie has anything particularly um, trenchant to say. <laughs> I don't think it's uh, made that particularly. It's like competently, you know, it's like assembled, right? Yeah. Um, but I think Melanie Griffith is really funny. <laughs> mm. I, I thought her performance is pretty good. It's just like, cartoon-ish, uh, kind of misogynistic, you know, uh, burlesque of, Indeed. Uh, 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 like, a mistress character, but I, I was enjoying it, so. Um, <laughs> what else? I think Bruce Willis is terrible, but I kind of enjoy how, like, completely checked out he is. Like, he's, he just does yeah, not give a shit. He's absolutely terrible. I actually think Tom Hanks works well for this role, but I was reading the Wikipedia page that one of, Brian, one of the things Brian DeVall said that was flawed on this film was they tried to make <clears throat> the main character too likable. Uh, and yeah. I think I agree with that. I think the movie would be better if he was like just a complete piece of shit, which he is. It, yeah, it, even though I wasn't weird. familiar with the plot of the source material um, prior to watching this, mm. it was clear that something was off by the fact that they tried to sand off his rough edges across the course of the film. And I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not arguing that this is an intentional, um, filmmaking choice, but by the end of it, it kind of felt like a, I mean, th- there are so many things that are just like broken about this one that don't really work. Hmm. Just, you know, out of place. And then going like the, you know, character arc, to the point that it felt kind of like a parody of like a redemption story for him. <laughs> and I kind of enjoyed it on that angle. Um, I just liked how much of a scumbag Tom Hicks was, it was, like I said, so just um, just speaking of the casting, we should also say that there were that like for example, the part of the reason why Bruce Willis is so unsuited for the project is that no one wanted him for the project yeah. except for you know the studio the itself. Yeah, yeah. Including so, Bruce Willis, it seems. Yeah. Um, so De Palma wanted, uh, or at least offered it to both Jack Nicholson and John Cleese. Interestingly mm, it enough, would have been interesting. In the- so yeah, Anderson. fellow fellow is English in the book. Mm. Uh, I don't think that would matter so much if he wasn't no. English per se. But, but I, I feel like there's a lecherousness to him that Bruce Willis fails to convey, which someone like Nicholson would do really well with. Yes, yes. And Cleese would have been a strange choice, but I, I feel like I would have liked it more. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Bruce Willis is terrible. So the the project was at one point attached to Mike Nichols. He wanted Steve Martin for the Sherman. McCoy role, which is weird. I don't know if that yeah, would have worked. Tom Wolfe himself 
wanted Chevy Chase. And I think that would have worked, actually. Yeah, because he's such a... Uh, he's like yuppie personified. Exactly. Yeah. But I, I do think, I do think Tom Hanks is right for this. So I think the variety really lets it down. Yeah, yeah. I think Tom Hanks could have worked if they, yeah. if they committed to his character being like a total, total piece of yeah. shit. Which, which, which I feel like the film. I don't know. Like I feel like I definitely got that he was a, a piece of shit. It's sort of, yeah, I mean? it seems to, it seems to want it both ways because yeah. it seems that seems to be the the setup and archetype of his character. I, I would have loved it. At least half I, I was like I was like Rudy in the beginning that he would like get the shit beat out of him by those <laughs> the, the thugs at the beginning. Yeah, it's just like yes, yes, beat him up. But um, yeah, I I don't know what to say besides that. I I I was, I guess like I was. You know, because this film has a really infamous reputation for being like a disaster. You know, mm. um, it doesn't doesn't feel like that necessarily. Um, but I, I don't know. Like, there's some parts that I thought were funny. There's some parts that I thought were pretty tedious. Um, and on the whole, I would give it three out of, out of five stars. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I don't know what to say besides that. I I I was not. Uh, I did not. Um, unenjoy. I did. I, I. It was not an unenjoyable experience for me. <laughs> What about you? I would say it's not, it was not a completely unenjoyable experience. And I will say that, like, there are De Palma stylistic flourishes throughout that, you know, keep things going. Yeah. Um, like, it doesn't feel anonymously directed or anything. Like, it feels like a, no, no. it feels like De Palma to some degree. Yeah, yeah. I mean, his trademarks are all there. And the story yeah. is kind of his, is, is sort of his, there's like a, element of surveillance in it, you know, it's very De Palma-y sort of. But the, the, I, the, the whole idea of this type of film, which again, I'll go back to my, to my criticism, which I won't be able to better in calling it satire, the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, this movie has nothing to say. That type of story where it's like, this is going to like, it's going to be this central like case or something that exposes the facile corruption yeah. and vanity so of all these players and it's like an ensemble It feels, it's a, it feels like flawed and, from conception, you know? Yeah, I mean, like, the idea of the novel doesn't sound interesting to me, even yeah, so though I that, think, I think that's that more well of a problem than it being... Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it was, like, you know, like a big bestseller. I feel like Top Wolf has gotten some flack for being, like, a racist and stuff, so... Yeah. This one was a little racist, too, but, you know... Whatever. Oh, it was, indeed. We're just quoting Wikipedia here, but <laughs> one of the reasons why they decided to cast um, Morgan Freeman as the judge uh, was to counterbalance the the problematic depiction of race in the film. Because originally they were considering Walter Matthau, Alan Arkin, Edward James, almost even. The scene where he gives his speech, I thought was so funny. Yeah, that was funny. It's like it's like that seemed like. Like, this can't be serious. This is now a parody, right? Like, that's what it seemed like to me. It, 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 it's really hard to tell how much, like, it is intended. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, but I, I definitely enjoyed it on that level. Because, like, when you're introduced to Morgan Freeman, you see he's, like, a piece of shit judge. Yeah. And he's, like, he calls, like, a, a young African-American, like, uh, man, a, a boy. And it's, like, racist. Mm. It's, like, you dare call me racist. <laughs> so funny. I was, I was fucking cackling at the end of that. <laughs> just just be decent people <laughs> a bunch of bullshit <laughs> fuck you fuck you judge um I like that I I, I so you know like about this movie which which uh 
is not true from what I read about the book is that at the end of it, nothing really changes. <laughs> Again, I feel like that's kind of, I mean, true to life in a way. Oh, yeah, I guess so. You're right. I guess, like, Tom Hanks gets away with it, really. Yeah. Yeah. And in the book, he doesn't. In the book, he doesn't. Well, it doesn't really, like, resolve in the book, actually. Well, it says he gets acquitted, or acquitted and then he gets taken in civil court. So, yeah. at least there's a, there's a moral comeuppance for him, which is not true in the movie. Hmm. <laughs> Can I tell you the, the moment that I, I, I laughed so hard that I cried myself? Yeah. Okay, so it's this, this great scene that after um, Tom Hanks gets arrested, okay, and he has to spend a night in jail, and uh, Bruce Willis sees him leaving the courthouse, and it's like, I'm, I'm going to take you home, buddy, because Bruce, Willis, uh, Bruce Willis' character has written this article that sort of, you know, set public opinion against him, you know? sort of like stoked interest in the case made it so that yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. the, the prosecutors whatever so he's like <laughs> he, he takes him on the subway okay and they're like sitting down together and, and Bruce Willis is like you don't smell that good and then this this small music starts playing and Tom just like I, I pissed myself mm. <laughs> I, just, I laughed so hard <laughs> It's so funny. Just because the music is so like, da, 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 <laughs> you know. It's, it's genius uh, comic, comedic timing. So that was, that was really funny. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't really think, uh, I, this movie is, is not uh, interesting as a satire. Um, but uh, as a comedy, I kind of I kind of like it, so... <laughs> You know, it, it's it's handsomely photographed. Yeah. The another part that I thought like it was an effective like satirical moment was, um, Tom Hanks's dad is like this like old money like patrician like mm-hmm. but like like kind of blue collar. I took the subway every day, son, and he gives the son this speech about how oh virtue is the most important thing. But I guess it's okay in this case if you lie. And I was like, yeah, you know what. Uh, these people are pieces of shit. And they would immediately forsake their own values for private gain. So, like that. That was good. That he was wasn't blue collar. He was definitely white collar. Yeah. Ethical. Because he had a fucking yeah, there's, there's like a weird. There's like a weird like blue collar like work ethic to him too, though. Yeah, you know? yeah. That was what they were saying. Like he had values. He had old yeah. school values. Even though but I, just, I just like how how flimsy those values were. Yeah. In the face of any any sort of uh, you know. I don't know. Um, but I, I really thought Melanie Griffith was really funny in this. So. <laughs> I guess I kind of have a soft spot for her as an actress. Um, I thought she was. I thought it was uh, hilarious how committed she was to doing this like shitty accent. <laughs> so that was enjoyable. It was like Tom Hanks was in the middle being assaulted by these two <laughs> awful accents. One yeah. from Kim Cattrall, one from Melanie Griffiths. <laughs> I actually thought Kim Cattrall was pretty funny too. So... Um, I thought I thought it seemed like they both were really enjoying the parts they were playing. Yeah, which I could always I could always enjoy in a film. Now let's uh, move on to uh, uh, an opposite film. Um, Blame it on Rio. My best friend will be pretty pissed when he finds the girl he think exists with a tongue inside his body's throat. No parent permission.
what Blame if we both a little bit crazy? Blame it on Rio. I don't know the rest of the lyrics, unfortunately. I was trying to look up lyrics, but uh, I couldn't find any kind of thing on the internet. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, I know. Um, anyway, so do you want me to sum it up, or do you want me to, yes, you want please. to take it? Okay. So, um, picture this. Michael Caine. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mike, Michael Caine. As in Alfie. Alfie, yeah. Alfie himself. You are only supposed to blow the bloody, right, the doors, bloody doors, off. doors off. Yeah, yeah. That uh, one. Alfie, that, that, that great movie, Alfie. Hello. Um, it's me, Alfie. Alfie. So, um, Michael Caine Mr. is Mr. Wayne. Let me, let me do this. Let me fucking get through she this. She was only 16. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> That's the Beatles. So, um, Michael Caine uh, and lives in Brazil. It's such a weird premise, this. Where he has like a factory in Sao Paulo with his male best friend Joseph Bologna and yeah it's like this office this glass yeah. encased office in the middle of the a middle factory of floor or something so they're, they're imperialists yeah uh, so these two have a factory um, they are going to go on a vacation to Rio but uh, on the eve of their trip to go they're about to run out the door they're packing their suitcases uh, Michael Caine's wife announces that she's going to uh, Aruba. To make a baby. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> um, and uh, is, you know, he, she. It was not Aruba. Yeah, they talk. It was something like that. Someplace. Yeah, Club Med, that's what I remember. She's going to go somewhere else. What the hell and is Club we, Med? Is that a it's place? Like a resort. It's just like a resort chain. Okay, it's a brand. Yeah. Um, so, she's going to go to this resort, and they're going to have a break or possibly get a divorce or something. Just, we were Joseph on Bologna, a break! Shut up. Joseph Bologna <laughs> is also getting divorced from his wife, which is the subject of much comic talking about. She's she's taken half! That's my Joseph Bologna impression. <laughs> um, they both have... Uh, teenage, underage daughters who are 17 years old where they take with them to Rio. Okay. Um, one played by Demi Moore. Just the other sorry, one played by what's the age of consent in Rio? <laughs> Did I get up? <laughs> in in when, whatever year this film was made. <laughs> uh, I'm just gonna... Okay. You should have determined if any crimes were committed. Wow, it's, it's 40. <laughs> Crikey. Never mind. Moving on. With a judicial precedent showing that close in age exceptions that allows those aged 12 and 13 to engage in sexual activity who are older than, or five years or older. So, great stuff. So, 14. Back to the story. Yeah, sorry. I was just, I was just trying to read this uh, Wikipedia page about the age of consent in Brazil. I'm just going to buy my ticket real quick. <laughs> uh, so, two 17-year-old daughters uh, who are going with them on the strip. Um, you know, they lay some ground rules. No... Staying out after 12, whatever. Who cares? Um, <laughs> now you know, ladies. <laughs> <laughs> you shut the fuck up. Uh, so, Joseph Polodia, being a um, uh, uh, about to be divorced, is looking to get his, his dick wet. Um, so, uh, and Michael Caine being this like sort of fuddy-duddy, you know, guy who's really boring, um, wants to um, not do that, just repair his relationship with his wife mm. and and 
let's see. So they they're assaulted by uh, lascivious displays of uh, of of the female anatomy. Um, if there's ever ever a movie to turn me into a sort of like Travis Bickle like you know figure, it would be this one. <laughs> um, they're assaulted by all this all this nudity, and Michael is like, oh god, I couldn't possibly, you know. Um, so uh, Joseph Polonia starts fucking some divorcee. Uh, and then um, Demi Moore and the other woman, the other girl, go to a wedding party. And then, uh, whoopsie daisy, uh, this 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 young girl, the seventeen year old girl who was actually seventeen when they made the movie. Um, uh, well, what, what what happens between them, Hugh? Uh, this this woman who is the the daughter of 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 um, Michael Caine's best, best friend. friend mm. who, he's known since she was a baby. Indeed. Uh, what what happens between them, you? Would they perchance happen to have sexual intercourse on the beach? <laughs> no. Yes, they would. Yeah, really? yeah, yeah that, that's what happens. Yep. Yeah. Uh, the movie is about um, uh, that. <laughs> that's it. And you you mentioned the fact that uh, Michelle Johnson, the woman in question, was seventeen. Yes. At yes. The time. Uh, according to Wikipedia, apparently she had to receive permission from a judge to appear topless mm, in some of the scenes well, of the film, presumably due to some specific laws in Rio at the time. Yeah, but she also appeared bottomless, so. Mm. All right, you. Um, I'm, I'm just going to say my opinion for this. Um, while I admit this film is attractively photographed, uh, that it seems confidently directed, uh, I, I think this is one of the worst films I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> uh, just based solely on uh, its morality. Um, like I just said in my letterbox interview that I posted while we were writing this episode, watching this episode, this is like Jeffrey Epstein's favorite movie. Because <laughs> it, it is very aggressively pro-Michael Caine having sex with this, this 17-year-old girl. Uh, she comes on to him and wants to fuck him. Uh, and it's terrible, so... And what and man it, could it, resist? It, 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 honestly, it honestly makes it honestly saves his marriage. So because yeah, it all squares out because it turns out his wife was having an affair with his best friend, Joseph so, Moria, who so, was the so, father of the daughter. Yeah, so it's yeah. all fine. It's, it's okay. Both have things okay. need to work out. Yay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you, what, what did you think about this movie? What did I think of this movie? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I actually do think that uh, my experience of this movie mirrors your experience of the bonfire of the vanities, because <laughs> oh, like God. you come at this film knowing that it is like horrifically misjudged from the get go. We already knew that going in. Like you read anything uh, yeah, about yeah. this film, you hear about yeah. this film, you know what you're in for, <laughs> sure. and and you just watch it unfold for a hundred minutes. <laughs> this movie definitely feels fucking more insane. <laughs> This movie feels way more like a disaster than the Bonfire of the Vanities does. Yeah, so like as a curiosity, it's like this like horrendous attempt at anything <laughs> resembling a, a film or a comedy, whatever whatever you want to call it. Yeah, fails so spectacularly in every level. And again, maybe accepting, I agree. Some of the photography is quite interesting, like some of the almost verite style way they shoot the <laughs> or, beach or the wedding bizarre- scene and stuff. The bizarre way that they that looks uh, quite nice, have actually. interview sequences with <laughs> Michael Cade. So strange. Oh, the director camera stuff. Mm. Yeah. But that just okay. seemed like so old hat by 1984, mm. I think. Okay, joke to you. Um, it, it, I wonder if Woody Allen ripped this off for husbands and wives. 
which has the features that device, I think. Well, I mean, a lot of his films prior to this feature a similar device. So, mm. so it probably is what you're saying. I mean, yeah. What do you, Alan, definitely like this movie? I mean, this feels like a movie that Woody Allen would have made, could have made, but in a slightly different way. Mm. Yeah. Like Michael Caine would have been a, an author or something. Yeah, it's That'd just made a difference. <laughs> but, and it probably would have been less, like, wacky. Yeah. Um, the script, the script for this is like so horrible on like a line by line level where you can tell that the lines themselves think they're mm. clever. There's, there's something very, uh, yeah, there's something like sort of off about the way that the patter is performed too. Yeah. So you kind of, you kind of get that Michael Caine and, and Joseph Bologna know what they're saying is like terrible, you know? Every line is like a nightclub hack line. Hmm. Yeah. It's not it's not funny dialogue that has the shape of real dialogue. It's like all delivered like these yeah. terrible, clever, clever one liners that aren't clever. Mm. They're very laboured. Mm. But yeah, this is a pretty good time I think. It's funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's just funny that it exists and that I just have a trade wreck quality. This is like Stanley Donut's last movie. It's pretty, <laughs> pretty funny. Is it really? Uh this is the last like theatrical film. Wow. I mean, you can kind of understand why. <laughs> Do you reckon this is what made Elaine May fall for him? <laughs> Maybe she was like, ah. Oh. I mean, I get. I only got together in 1999, so. so probably not. Or at least they only married. Oh, no, it's just partner, actually. No, they, so they didn't marry. No, they didn't. But they were together for the last 10 years of his life. Yeah. 20 years, actually. Yeah. Mm, wow. 30 years. 40 years. 20. 50 yeah, years. He died last year. 60 years. Here, so maybe she caught like a, a rerun of Playing It on Rio on TV in 1999. I don't know why this movie would have a rerun. I'm just call them up. It's, it's too, there's too much nudity in it to, for it to go play on TV. I guess like HBO stuff. The scene that I thought was the funniest was when uh, <laughs> there was the, the hammock together. <laughs> By the way, he's like, I was just thinking about the first time I kissed you. Yeah, he said he kissed her on the bottom when she was an infant. <laughs> Which is like the maybe the worst thing I've heard in my entire life. I know. <laughs> like, I can't believe he said that. Holy shit. Someone like put that in, someone like wrote that down and was like, I'm going to, yeah, this, that's good. That's, that's, what, that's, that's, that's a solid uh, bit of material right there that someone should say. And like... The way that they handle uh, Demi Moore's character, mm. like, like obviously it makes some sense that she's annoyed, mm. but then like by the end she's kind of over yeah, it. She right? cut her up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> she's like, yeah. yeah. Makes sense. My dad's fucking my seventeen-year-old friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't understand what the big deal. He's is. the daughter of his friend, and, and yeah, you know, yeah, he's still married to my mom, and yeah, this is cool. Yeah, what's the, what's the big deal? This is like normal sexual behavior. I like that she has a retainer in it too, just make her seem even younger than she is. <laughs> uh, what a distressing film. <laughs> this would have been a good one to watch together, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. Watching it by myself was like a very like trying experience, I have to say. As in you were trying not, not to come. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was able to sustain myself to the end of the movie, thank God. Actually, it's so insane to me that, that his wife gets back together at, with I know. him at the end. I like how it's he like, just, like, 
Well, if we make it, you know, she's, everyone's kind of, you know, morally compromised, then it's fine. Oh, so stupid. Okay. Well, that's uh, blame it on Rio, I guess. Yeah. Do you have any particular moments you want to bring up before uh, we scoot on? So is that two thumbs up from both of us? Um, two thumbs and one hard, rock hard. Are we supposed to give them revised thingo scores? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Revised rotten potato scores? Rotten, but from tomatoes. Rotten potato. Oh, potato. Uh, we, did, we definitely did. We definitely did do that it's last time. Off. So, we definitely did that last time. <laughs> we so, didn't do it uh, last time. Yeah. No. Oh, let's not do it this time then. No. All right. Let's let's move on to um, bonus features. Bonus features. Bonus features. Bonus features. Bonus. Bonus features. Bonus features. Bonus. Alright, I'll go first, because I can get through mine pretty quickly. Alright. Because basically I watched uh, one, two, three, four films by the same director and star. Wow. <laughs> and writer. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I watched four films by the director uh, by the name of Jackie Chan. Mm. Um, I started my, um, I guess not week, but period since the last episode off by watching a little film called Project A 2. Mm. Uh, which uh, I was kind of like, what the fuck are you talking about? Uh, it being better than the first run of day at the beginning. And then by the middle, I was like, this movie is great. <laughs> so it is great. I really, I really enjoy the element of like French forest that gets yeah. introduced. Yeah. That scene, is, that scene is amazing. <laughs> uh, and I kind of like how like, you know, product day kind of feels like a lucky stars movie in some respects. Just Cause yeah. it's Sam Hung and Yun Bao in it. And then they just disappear in this movie to be replaced by members of Jackie Chan's stunt team. <laughs> it's really funny. You can tell that he sort of became more of a, a star or egotist uh, in between the two films. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, this movie is just really solid. I think the last fight scene's great. Um, I like. I I kind of was uh, uh, amused by how inscrutable the politics were. Mm. Um, and uh, I like that Maggie Chung is in it. <laughs> She, she gets a better role in it as well. Then, like, yeah, then, like, the Some of her own police story films, I guess. Jackie Chan films, yeah. I mean, yeah. I like her in the police story films. Yeah, but she doesn't um, really do that much. Yeah, but I think she has a good role in this one. I mean, she doesn't really do anything. In this I can't movie. remember, actually, but, you know, she sort of does. <laughs> she has some studs that are okay. I think what it is um, is there's, there's more prominent female characters in this than Project Part 1. Which there are no prominent female characters at all. Well, there's one. I, which I, no, I mean, not even really. Yeah. There's a female character that isn't part of the movie. Yeah, yeah. But um, I, yeah, I like that they're part of the... Fun. Yeah, the story. Yeah, they sort of drive the narrative to some degree. Yeah. And, you know, that scene with where they go to her house is amazing, so... Hmm. It's a good... Tra- um, like, it's a, it's a fine trade-off. Like, yeah, you lose Sam yeah. Hung and Yan but you gain Maggie yeah, Chung. Maggie Chung and... Uh, what's her name? Yeah. Uh, Ro- Ro- Rosamund Kwan, who was in uh, a couple of the movies I watched today. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, pretty much some every um, <laughs> Hong Kong movie I watched had had one link to another that wasn't Jackie Chan. Weirdly mm. enough, because uh, um, Doubles Cause Trouble, Troubles also stars Maggie Chung and um, what's her name, Cecilia, or sorry, Carol. Carol Chang, mm-hmm. which uh, Operation Condor stars. 
So, very strange. Very odd. Anyway, uh, so Project A Plus 2, good stuff. Uh, then I watched Armor of God, <laughs> which, uh, uh, for the, the first, like, opening scene, I was like, oh, God, oh, no. It's just uh, you know, a bunch of blackface. Oh, the, the stealing the um, yeah artifact it, it from is, the tribe. It is just like a, it's oh, just yeah, like a super offensive, just a shitty Indiana Jones knockoff. But it just has some good action scenes. And you know that's the part where he came closest to dying. So yeah, I get to give him props for that. Uh, I like the bits where he's like swatting down the mountain. Um, but it is really racist. Uh, the movie gets but racist it's kind the of, too. I, I think it's fun, kind of funny that it's like it's the yeah. white imperial racism of the Indiana yeah. Jones franchise, sort of filtered through yeah. without thought, like yeah. just kind of automatically as this like so visual weird. language. <laughs> and watching via watching Hong this, Kong cinema, watching this in Operation Condor made me really think. Um, uh, uh, what's it called? Chinese Zodiac is even funnier. Because mm. Ch- Chinese Zodiac is like a nominally nominal like continuation of these movies, but his character like basically espouses the opposite like values in that movie, which I think <laughs> is so funny. Um, probably maybe perhaps a reflection on Jackie Chan's personal uh, transformation. Indeed. But um, the opening sequence, the opening like thirty minutes of this film after we, they, we get beyond that uh, bit of like racist stuff, uh, I think is amazing. Because <laughs> mm. just like this bizarre montage of like you know it's cross cut between. Uh, <laughs> Uh, these robed, mysterious robed figures, like talking about Jackie Chan, and then like uh, a like a Cantonese pop song playing, and this like terrorist attack happening where, and and the female mm. getting kidnapped. It's just it's just great stuff. Um, and I thought it was really funny and engaging all the way through. I like I like this movie. I like that this movie doesn't. It doesn't really feel like except for the opening and the end sequence. There's not like any kung fu scenes really. No, um, there's like a really long chase scene, which I thought was pretty well done, um, and uh, I just like the vibe. <laughs> I don't know, like there's this great uh, like driving montage, and I kind of like that. Uh, I don't know, I, I like the side characters in this movie too. I think it's, I think they're an enjoyable uh, uh, ingredient. Yeah. So, good, good film. I think it's an especially good film to watch when you're like laid up in bed, a bit under the weather yeah. or something. It's very, it's very, it's good, it's very pleasant, mm. except for the racism. Um, okay, and then I followed that up by rewatching a little film called Project A, which uh, holds up. Uh, another great part about Project A too does not say Project A at all. There's no image <laughs> of it. And I thought he's the whole movie is about the rivalry between the police and the navy in Hong Kong. And then in Project A2, he just becomes a police officer, so <laughs> who cares? Uh, and then I watched Devil's Cause Troubles, which we'll talk about at the end of my watched segment, so because we both have some opinions on that one, mm. I think. I watched uh, a little film called Gremlins. Wow, finally. Yeah, very enjoyable. Um, you know, it's kind of like whatever at the beginning, because it's like, oh, this is some like, shitty Spielberg garbage, but I like how like acidic it becomes at the end. Uh, is Gremlins sequence. one the one with the racist stuff, or is that Gremlins two? Um, there's like a little bit of like you know Chinese stereotypical stuff. So no, there's like there's like a scene where they they do like there's a whole group of Gremlins um, affecting like terrible African American stereotypes. No, no, like no, a no, jazz club the, or something. It must be number must two. Be the second one. Um, there's an amazing scene in this movie where they go to a uh, or the the Gremlins like take over a bar. 
that where Phoebe Cates is like still waiting on them for some reason. Mm. Uh, and basically, I was just like laughing my head off during this whole scene. Uh, and I read this really great review by uh, David Kerr, who argued that the gremlins sort of become like uh, children by the end. So the end sequence where they all get burnt in is kind of horrifying in a way. Mm. Um, but I kind of like it as like a, a weird, subversive take on like Steven Spielberg's themes. Sort of by Spielberg himself, in part. So, good stuff. And then I watched a little movie called Our Operation Condor, uh, which I also thought was super just pleasant and good. Um, and, yeah. <laughs> kind of kind of forgetting this one a little bit. I like that. I, I, and something I like about the Armor of God movies is how horny Jackie Chan is in all of them. <laughs> Uh, I watched Operation Condor and I was feeling pretty sick, so I don't really remember that well, to be honest. But it's kind of a good way to see it, I think. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not as racist. I mean, there are some racist parts in it, but it doesn't feel as quite as racist. It feels it feels more sort of rip, ripping off Indiana Jones in a way, because it takes place in, in, in Africa. Yeah. Um, but uh, it definitely has a nice vibe. I mean, There's this great prolonged sequence at a hotel that is uh, very well executed. Mm. Then I watched a movie called Pulse by Kiyoshi Kurosawa. Because mm. I'm giving a conference presentation on uh, technological ghosts in Japanese horror films wow. on Saturday. Uh, so I rewatched that so I could write a paper about it. Uh, and I really enjoyed this film's mood and the way it was shot and a lot of things about it. And Kiyoshi Kurosawa is a good filmmaker. Is that a direct quote from your paper? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and then I, I watched a movie I'd never seen before uh, called Godzilla, uh, which is one of those films that... Uh, the Takashi Shimura right? one. Hmm? The one with Takashi Shimura in it, right? Yeah, yeah. It was directed by Ishiro Honda, who's like Akira Kurosawa's like right-hand man. So. And also a Slash, like, Co-directed and by... Shut up. Co-directed by... Uh, or co-director of his like final films. And, uh, you know, Godzilla's one of those movies where you're watching and you're like, yeah, that's, that's, there's a reason why this is a classic. Yeah, it's really good stuff. So, I really enjoyed it a lot. I like watching Tokyo get destroyed. I think the effects work is amazing. So, that's my review of Godzilla. Cool. Uh, and then I watched a film called Devil's Cause Troubles, which we're going to talk about right now. Uh, which is a Wong Jing comedy film that mysteriously appeared on both of our Netflixes. Which I thought was pretty delightful, mm. and um, you know what? I really like Maggie Chung as an actress, but uh, this is the first time I've appreciated her as a woman. Oh god! <laughs> and God, she wears these cardigans in this movie. Oh my god! Uh, I, was, I was fucking dying. <laughs> I'm fucking dying listening to this. Um, yeah, she's really, really attractive in this movie. Uh, and you know what? It's nice to see her have a movie where she's just allowed to be the lead. Yeah. So, so the reason I decided to watch this in the first place when I f- came across it on Netflix was because the thumbnail image was of Maggie Chung, and uh, and I was like, I hope she gets more of a role in this film than she typically does. Boy, does she! And it wasn't just Netflix gaming me like they do. Why was this- why was this movie called Doubles Cause Troubles? I have no idea, because there's no doubles in it. <laughs> no. <laughs> the, t- the English title makes no sense. I'm not sure what the original Cantonese title is. Uh, I like that 
every Wong Jing movie I've watched besides uh, um, High Risk is featured someone getting electrocuted. Oh, I enjoy the fact that Wong Jing is in this as like this mm. pervert guy. Yeah, who ends up being the police commissioner at the end. And I now I didn't, I, when I was watching it, I didn't know that was Wong Jing. And then when you look mm. it up after the fact, you're like, that makes so much sense. That, 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 that's the guy I picture making these movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It definitely feels like him. I also like the fact it's not a flattering like cameo as well. No, no, he's like a he's like a creepy, you know, sex obsessed jokester who tries to basically rape Maggie Chung. Of course, um, there's yeah an intimation of date rape in this because it's a one. I really, I really, I really like the bizarre uh, mise-en scene of his apartment with all the toilets. Yes, we should. We, that was the so best, best bit. So they, yeah, when he, like Maggie Chung is like basically seeking refuge from gangsters in yes. his house. That's the only reason. Well, she's no. There. So basically, they're in a club and he hits on her, and basically he's like, "Oh, take." She's like, "Take me home with you," because these gangsters have come. Yeah, yeah. So, so and, kind uh, of offensively yeah. uh, stereotypical gangsters, but you know, whatever. And his furniture is 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 toilet seats. Yeah. And uh, from within some of the toilet bowls, he, he, he retrieves, like, a cup of tea and cake and stuff. Yeah. It's funny stuff. stuff. Um, I, 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 was, I, was, I was fond of this film. <laughs> I like that the end bit is just this, like, dumb gag, too. Mm. So it's stupid. just a, it's a Wang Jing film. They're all, they're all pretty interchangeable. <laughs> yeah, I mean, is it is it is it uh, uh, homophobic and, and sexist? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but is it pretty funny? I mean, I I was laughing. Uh, yeah, so that's what you watched. Yep, and that's what one of the watch? films I watched. And what the only watch? other film I watched that I remember is To All the Boys I Loved Before: Colon P.S. Mm. I Still Love You. Mm, the the Richard Virginia raising. Yes, I still love you. Yeah. Fucking, so the the continuation disgusting. of the runaway success, mm. which was to all the boys I loved before the original one. Um, based on a series of novels, so I guess this follows the. I think it's a trilogy, right? It's a trilogy of yeah. novels, and this yep, yep, yep. continues on from the novels. So I guess, in some sense, you could say it's not as cynical as it might seem because there is that source material. But mm. I think um, the joy of the first film was that it was a perfect self-contained romantic comedy story. Mm. The, the hook of the, the film was solid and it resolved and that was, that was it. That's all you needed from, from this series of films. And I think it would have been better if they just utilize a similar or the same ensemble cast for a different project. Because essentially what you have here is the same film, but with the entire dramatic engine removed. Mm. Because now that she's ended up with the man of her dreams... Where else is there to go? They have to just, you know, install an artificial obstacle that needs to be navigated before they return to their dream love, right? Yeah, I was. I noticed that this was getting sort of mixed reviews. I was gonna, kind of interested to see where you would lie. And I think the problem is, is that you know Noah Centineo, who was a breakout star of the original one, works really well in the context of the first film because it ends at the point that they get together, right? Mm. And you have the fact that the they're, they're kind of coming from different backgrounds. 
Yeah. And that they've yeah, come together to form this scheme and then they fall for each other and whatever, you know. And there's some conflict there about the fact that he's, you know, with the popular kids, he's more of a dumb jock dude and she's more intellectual and romantic or whatever. Mm. And um, and hasn't had any experience like he had. And then that's, you know, that's the, the thing that the, the first one was exploring and then they get together at the end. Mm. It doesn't really matter whether it's going to be a long-lasting relationship or not. The, the film's ended there. We've seen them to get together. Whatever. Who cares? It doesn't matter. So when yeah. you explore the relationship further in the second film, you're kind of like... It's not interesting. Why are you with Noah Centennial? He, doesn't, he seems like a bit of a dick, right? He seems yeah, like he's better a, as an object of desire than as a yeah. person you're having a relationship with. Well, someone like you can form a connection with, but like if you're staying in a relationship with them, mm. you're kind of like, is this all he has to offer her? And they introduce yeah. like a rival for her affection. So he's someone who is more suited to. Yeah, I've her. seen the, the right. fucking trailer. And that's that's the one of the conflicts of the film, the main conflict of the film. Someone who had received one of the letters from the first film but hadn't responded yet, and who she'd always have she'd hold a particularly big candle for, or something. I don't know, whatever. Anyway, so he gets introduced to the plot, and uh, he's hanging around. You kind of like, yeah, I think this guy actually is more suited to her. And this, this romance seems more interesting than the one she has with Noah Centennial. So then when it, you know, wraps back up with Noah, it's kind of like, yeah. I know <laughs> what you're going to do with the third uh, I'm film. Not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to fucking watch it, so I don't care. I'd recommend watching the first one still. I'm not going to do it. I don't give a shit. But not, not so much the second. Okay. Uh, any, any other memories come through? No. Oh, friend. Oh.